Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Susan Barber. For 30 years, Susan has been grateful to work with people who are dying and those who care for them. Her work is a daily honoring of Stephen and Andrea Levine, whose books, lectures, and workshops she credits with saving her life at a time when friends were dying left and right during the San Francisco AIDS crisis. As a hospice volunteer coordinator for 20-plus years, she's trained over 650 people whose desire is to support the dying and their families. On April 20th, 2018, she and her colleagues completed a training of nine men incarcerated in San Quentin as compassionate end-of-life volunteers. As a community educator, she continues to be inspired by those who show up curious, bereft, inspired, to be of service, to learn, and to honor those who've died. They've been and will continue to be her teachers. Her current job, one she finds extraordinary, is at Mission Hospice and Hope Care. It remains one of the few not-for-profit, community-founded, and centered hospice programs in the U.S., making them innovators for the community. Welcome, Susan. Thanks so much for having me, Cheryl. So full disclosure, uh, we know each other very well. And what's interesting about that is that sometimes when I've uh, you know, we've we've been in the same world really for what almost all of that thirty years, yeah. And um, and sometimes that actually uh, trips a switch where I don't think of having. I, I have never thought until recently of having you on the show, which is crazy. You've sent me a million guests. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're just completely integrated into this work, and we share a lot of history in common. So, uh, my bad. Welcome. <laughs> well, thanks, Cheryl. And, and clearly, um, I, I was sharing with you a moment ago that I read your introduction to today's show, and clearly, you know me better than I do. So, <laughs> that was uh, so beautiful what you wrote. And um, I, my goal was just to keep sending people to you. Because this, of course, um, makes me very nervous to talk about this. So, um, <laughs> well, thank you for the does, invitation, and I'm really glad it worked out uh, time-wise that this can happen. And it and it does say something about you, which is that um, you're so truly gifted at networking, and I don't know that you always um, realize that's something that that is valued and that's important. And uh, so I'm glad to give that a, a spotlight, all the people you've, you've brought together and just to give you an opportunity to tell your own story um, because that all did not come from nowhere. You we kind of alluded to that in the biography, but I wonder yeah. if you would say how you came a little more about how you came to this work and how, how it unfolded for you uh, originally. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say, and Cheryl, please jump in here because as you well know, I have a tendency, I, I am very passionate about 
the work and the story, um, you know, just when you need to interrupt, just please feel free to do so. I like will. People of, of, my, of our age, I, I am recently 60 years old and smack dab in the middle of the baby boomers and grew up in suburban Long Island during the 60s and 70s. Um, where death was not a sort of topic of conversation. And in fact, I could go maybe as far to say, um, you know, my father, my, one of my early memories was him uh, saying this should never happen to anybody. Um, and so being so adverse to illness, death, loss, that even in church, I would be very um, careful about where I chose to sit because my biggest fear was that an older person might fall down or die in the church. So that was like a very strategic part of my life to avoid this so at all costs. You had, and, can and I how I found you had an group, awareness, say, pardon? Susan, so you yeah. had an awareness, even though you were being discouraged from thinking about it, talking about it, you were thinking about it anyway. Well, at 11, I shared this recently with um, a new friend, Ken Ross, who's the son of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and uh, he, we were, I told him that I was working in a local public library in Basel, where I grew up, and uh, I was like 11 or 12. It was a volunteer job, and my job was to open up new boxes of books that came in and get them ready for the librarians to do a death with them, and on Death and Dying came in. I was 11 years old in 1969. And without a hesitation or a thought about it, I did something that I would never do under any other circumstances. I took that book and I hid it and took it home with me and read it under the covers at 11 years old. And Mm. at the conclusion of finishing that book, which was short and um, and so impactful, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so glad there's somebody out there that knows what's going on. And then my next thought as an 11-year-old is like, you don't have any idea what that even means, which I was very aware of. And Mm. so... You know, I had that kind of an experience at 11, and then um, in, in my senior year in high school, our English teacher had lost many, many friends and family in the summer prior to the start of our English class, and every book we read was on death in some way or another. And in, you know, in college, I took a class on death and dying that I was pretty engaged in, but it's a very abstract idea and not something that I, you know, I could think about it as an intellectual pursuit and imagine things about that. But um, my only experience with death, you know, at that point had been the death of my my grandmother when I was seven, which was a very frightening and um, very hard to bear witness to. My mother got a phone call early one morning when my brother and I were having breakfast, and um, she just started... uh, like yelling at first and crying and and saying over and over, she's dead. Oh my God, she's dead. And my father came downstairs with the three younger kids and there was a lot of commotion. My brother and I had run into the kitchen and we hid under the kitchen table and kind of witnessed this and um, was horrified by it. And my father came down and said, everything's fine. Go back and finish your breakfast or you're going to be late for school. And we went to school that day as if nothing had happened and, you know, I think it's very common in those days for children to not, you know, be told, in, you know, what grandma died or she's dead <laughs> means or what the emotions around that were. And um, sure. so that was at seven. And so that, you know, really was a, a puzzling part of my childhood that I just couldn't figure out where to land that. Um, and so... You know, in terms of how did I find this work, this work found me when I came to San Francisco in 1981, about 
I told people about 10 minutes before the HIV virus, and we didn't meet for many years, maybe five or six. But when we met, um, there was no turning back. It was a very impactful time, um, as you probably well remember. And just mm-hmm. before I got involved with uh, my friend's death, who were dying of AIDS, a very good friend of ours, uh, we played softball. He was our coach. There was a group of women. He tried to coach us for many years, and he was diagnosed one summer when my friend and I were traveling in Europe with um, something the matter. He had passed out several times, and we kind of all joked, well, you know, we play for a bar, and that's probably what happened, and he was too dehydrated, whatever. But then it happened at work, and they took him emergently to Stanford, and after several months, he was worked up, and it turned out he had um, cancer in his brain, a melanoma, so it looked like buckshot throughout his brain, and he was given a three-month diagnosis, a prognosis at 37, and told to go home to his family in Pennsylvania and kind of wrap up his life. And when he got that news, he asked me uh, what I thought he should do, and I was stunned by that question, um, but I was seeing a therapist, and he knew that, and he said, you're the only person that I could think of that might have any idea of what, you know, ask your therapist, what should I do? And she gave me quite a long list of things, which Jeff um, adhered to for the next three years, um, including getting a support group, um, you know, getting a therapist, getting people to talk with him about what he was experiencing as a 37-year-old man. And what I did during those three years is I hid, and I um, could not bear to be near him. I just, it was so overwhelmingly frightening to me. And I was also ashamed of that because I knew that there were definitely times where he could have used more support. He had a very close and small circle of people supporting him. I would sometimes see him when he was well enough to come to a game. Um, One of the highlights, we went out to celebrate his 40th birthday. And then shortly after that, I got a phone call from uh, two friends that were with him on Easter Sunday. And they said, you need to come right now. And, um, and they said, this is not optional. You have to come now. And they hung up. And so I had to go then. And mm-hmm. um, he was he had been stuck. He couldn't get out of the bathroom. They weren't able to move him. Uh, by the time I arrived, he had moved. But um, that was a very, um, that day was a very pivotal day. Just one month prior to that, almost to the exact date, I had been um, a friend of mine said, you know, would you like to come to this lecture? I'm bringing a friend. And I said, well, you know, I had a mad crush on this gentleman. And I said, yes, you know, I would have gone anywhere with him. And I said, well, you know, he said, I think you'd be very interested in this. And I said, well, what is it about? He said, it's this man named Stephen Levine, and he's going to talk about death and dying. And I remember (laughs) thinking to myself, I've been avoiding my friend's death and dying for three years. Why would he think I was interested in this? But um, my desire to spend time with him overrode that fear, and off we went to a two-hour lecture by Stephen Levine. And I remember sitting in this church packed with people. It's possible maybe you were there. Um, It was just so full of people listening to this gentleman talk. And I remember at different times during the, the talk that I kept thinking to myself, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> and at the end of the talk, um, our friend, we all left together. And my friend turned to me and he was so excited uh, by this talk. And he said to me, oh, my God, what did you think? And I said, you know, I think I haven't lived in California long enough. I don't understand a word that man was saying. <laughs> and um, we kind of left it at that until a month later when I was called to Jeff's uh, bedside and um that experience, I remember at one point Stephen had said 
to people, you don't need to take notes. You just need to trust that you'll have this information that will come to you when you most need it. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy's crazy. But I was sitting (laughs) at Jeff's bedside a month later and just, I was so distressed. And at the time working at the stock market, so I would often get information like kind of as a ticker tape. And so the message, I was sitting with Jeff. I didn't know what to do. He was in a semi-coma at the time. I just got really quiet. And then this ticker tape message came across saying, it's possible to keep your heart open in hell. And I remember opening my eyes and looking around the room like, where did that come from? And then the next message was, soften your belly. You can soften your belly. And Mm -hmm. I did those things. And Jeff and I had an amazing um, experience. And I, I don't really know how else to define it, but he did actually, um, he was kind of out there and I had this experience of being with him sort of traveling out sort of into some kind of other realm and it was very clear there was a place where I needed to stop and he was going to continue on and then somebody came in the front door and slammed the door and it jarred us both and he opened his eyes and I opened my eyes and we looked at each other and he came out of this coma-like state he'd been in and he said, did that just happen? And I looked at him and I said, I hope not, but I think so. And <laughs> so at that point, I realized that those, those two lines had come directly from Stephen Levine's talk. And I made a determination to spend as much time as I possibly could learning whatever he knew because um, Jeff continued to be that the last month of his life, uh, along with some very dear friends, we continued to take care of him. Um, and there were so many experiences like that one that I just described that I had no paradigm for. I had no way to navigate that. That was very alien to my very right brain, very logical, very practical um, upbringing. And this other sort of soften your belly, keep your heart open in hell. Like I had no point of reference for that and also no point of reference for this experience of Jeff dying and, um, During the time that Jeff was very ill, my two closest friends, who I also uh, worked with from time to time, um, shared with me that they had been diagnosed with um, the HIV virus, which in those days was a death sentence. It was just a matter of when. And so it became very clear to me that what my strategy had been with Jeff, which was just to avoid him, was no longer possible because these were people that I I didn't have the um, option to avoid in my life. And they so were just too close, this, Susan? You mean they, there was too mm-hmm. much love? They were too close? or Well, one of them, I, I was that. doing catering at the time, and one of them ran the catering company, so I would see him almost, you know, I would work during at the stock market, and we got done at around two or three, and then we'd, all, we'd go in, it was the 80s, there was lots of money and lots of parties, and I would go and help him with all these catering gigs, and the other person worked there also, and that's how we had all become friends, and so disappearing from their lives was not an option at that point. And um, the nature of our relationship was different than Jeff's. When Jeff, that last month, Jeff, our relationship, that changed my life. And I have an immense amount of gratitude that he allowed um, me into his life at that point. Um, and Bill and Bob were already very close to my heart at that point, And it was not an option to just pretend this wasn't happening anymore. And so... Um, I've told this, I think I've shared this story with you in um, early May. 
uh, we were going to see a friend of mine and I to see a Bruce Springsteen concert, and that was sort of the thing that we were looking forward to because Jeff's illness and his death was um, very difficult. And um, at the concert, Bruce sang a song about his relationship with his father. And uh, what I was envisioning was Jeff's father, who had been there for the last month, and all of the ways he was caring for his son. And when the song ended, I just started weeping. And my neighbor who was with me said, I know, isn't this great? It's such a great concert. And then a voice as clear as the bell said to me, the next, you've seen Jeff alive for the last time. You, the next time you see him, you'll have died. And you don't need to understand this. You just need to know that you'll continue to show up for it. This is your work. And my heart broke and um, understood that that was right. Here's the thing, you know, looking back, I mean, I appreciate that you started with those few things that you remembered from your childhood that connect with now what your life work is, because it can sometimes be that way, can't it, that that we look back and we can see seeds, even though we fought like the devil against it in some way. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's not, it's people knew too. That's the other thing I hear. People kind of knew it about you when you didn't know it about yourself quite. And that's quite interesting. You know, the person it who was, took yeah. you, who thought you'd be interested in that, even though you couldn't imagine being interested in that. No, um, not at all. That's, and that so, really stands so, out. Yeah. Yeah, and what's so true about that, Cheryl, for, I was interviewed uh, several months ago for a podcast um, on the Death Hangout. And um, that was my, the first time anybody had asked me about, you know, how did this happen for you? Like, how did you land here? And uh, the interviewer asked me one question. This is why I've asked, like, if you need to, please just intervene. Because and I will have to question. in a second when we go to break. <laughs> <laughs> and I just laid it out. And I had never told the story chronologically. And at the end of the 45 minutes that I spoke for that first question, I realized that there were all sorts of things prior to what I thought of as sort of the seminal experience around this that had happened for me for many years, and I just had never, you know, had sort of the through string for those experiences. So, yes, I think that that is true, and I think it was no accident I was in that uh, high school senior English class. I think it was no accident that I was in that death and dying class at college, and um, that Jeff, that we all met each other right on the verge of this enormous... um, death experience that happened to thousands and thousands of people in San Francisco. I'll share a little story and then we'll go to break. Uh, If you haven't heard this story of Stevens, you'll appreciate it, but I'll tell it for the people listening. Uh, We were once talking, he and I, and I kind of asked him how he had gotten to that work. And he said when he was a little boy, and it was about the same age, seven or eight, his grandmother died and they wouldn't let him go to the funeral. Um, That's exactly right. And and he said, I've been trying to prove to them that I can handle it ever since. (laughs) Wow. Well, what's so interesting about that is I knew Stephen for years also. I never heard that story. But when my grandmother died, because I was the oldest in our family, I was sure I would go to the funeral. And that did not happen at all. And I was so upset about it. Um, 
So that's such a funny, no, I had no idea. That's very interesting. Well, let's go to break now on that happy note and we'll come back and just talk about where all that went for you. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn. You know all about it. Sign up for my email list. That would be great too. And to find Susan Barber, you can send her an email at sbarber at missionhospice.org. Org. That's S-B-A-R-B-E-R at missionhospice.org. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. 
Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Susan Barber, who's worked in the hospice and end-of-life arena for over 30 years and currently runs education and volunteer training for Mission Hospice. And Susan, we're, we're kind of midway as far as I'm concerned, because you've... Um, you know, you, you've shared kind of the introduction you had to Stephen and Andre Levine. Like there's there's an uh, a serendipity, weirdly. I, I feel sure you didn't see it that way at the time. No. Um, it was just <laughs> no, a I collision of terrible events. But I um, thought it's just a run of bad luck for, for, for a, 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 for a while. And exactly. when I had my epiphany, I realized that there was something... You know, and I, I was always from a young child age, I was a religious studies major in college, so I had a sense of something much bigger than myself operating here. But that epiphany moment made it so very clear to me that um, I was correct about that part <laughs> and um, that doing this kind of work wasn't something, you know, and when I say I don't didn't have a choice about, certainly we all have choices our whole life about the, what we do. And I feel like, you know, sometimes there's things in my life that I've chosen and other times there's things that I've been chosen for or have chosen me. And this work, at end, like end-of-life work, being with people that are dying, I feel like, you know, sort of the latter, like I, this, you know, that chose me somehow. I did not, as I tell people, I was not on this line of career day in high school. I was not standing there on the death and dying line. Although <laughs> maybe, maybe in did some Did they way, have I, a I line like actually. that at your school? Huh? <laughs> Did they have a line like that at your school? If you're interested we, in death and dying work, have, we did go have, over here. We, we did not have that. We did have career day, but sadly, that was not on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sp- and and they don't let you know that certain career paths will lead you in that direction, like medicine or you know, uh, right. it's just kind of a big fat mystery, isn't it? It is. It really yep. is. And, you know, I think this is, you know, I think there's that quality of mystery that has been so, you know, if there's anything, being with Jeff, just so I arrived on that epiphany I had was actually accurate. I went home after that wonderful concert, after throwing a sort of prayer to the universe that went something like this. I know that's Bruce Springsteen up there, but if there's anything I could ever do to repay that man for the experience that I have just had here, I will do whatever it takes. And 10 years later, just through serendipity, his, do- his sister called to see if I was available to cater his parents' 50th wedding anniversary, which was a highlight in their, you know, in their family life. And it was only for the immediate family and a, and a neighbor of the mothers. And through that experience, his mom and I became friendly, as did his dad. And I just felt like that was such an amazing blessing to be. And I told them this story. I told the mother this story after um, after. Douglas died, and it was just such an incredible, you know, she's like, you have to tell him, and I said, I don't, I don't know that he's that interested, I'm more, I just wanted to tell you that I feel like when we, you know, when Pam called me, I kind of felt like, wow, that was almost 10 years ago to the date that I had that experience at that show, and there was, you know, it wasn't about uh, anything, but I felt like really an opportunity to repay that generosity because 10 years down that line, I was already working in hospice then a dozen, 12 friends that were very close to me had died by that point. I had been with several of them and, um, 
at the point of their death. And some of my closest friends I was actually with when they died. And the mystery of being so close to that coming and going that we do. I've only seen one birth and it was a large cow, so I don't really count that. But the deaths that I've seen, there's something very compelling and sacred about that moment and the moments leading up to that. And to be able to help people as when I was a volunteer coordinator and training volunteers, which I'm actually no longer doing, and that has been a, a bit of grief for me, but um, you know, to be able to help people respond to something that they already were conscious of and to be able to turn towards the suffering of other people and to support that and, and often help transform that suffering into something that can be beautiful, that has been a, a remarkable journey um, the last 20 years that I've been working and getting paid to work in hospice. And now to be able to take that out to the community of San Mateo and you know, offer people opportunities to start to think about death. And people say, well, why do you really want to focus on that? And because in my personal experience, and I think the experience of many people that do this kind of work, um, our kind of tagline at Mission Hospice is it's about life. And that's exactly right. Up until our last breath, it's about our life. And to be able to support that um, idea for people, um, even in, in critical and very difficult illnesses, that people are still alive until their last breath and that we can support who they are and what is of value to them and that we can engage people in a broader conversation about that. Those, to me, those that's the other part of the miracle of this kind of work, that that is not, you know, most people aren't having these t- dinnertime conversations, but if we can start to engage them in a movie series or in death cafes or by coming to hear a public figure speak about these things or like the last week in San Francisco for those that, live out of the rain, the, the immediate area, um, let's reimagine um, there's a week-long celebration and contemplation about how can we reimagine what end of life could be like. And there was over 175 events, 8,000 plus people attended them between April 16th and the 22nd in San Mateo County, uh, San Francisco County, primarily in Alameda County, and just to, you know, to live 30 years in this arena and to see the kind of conversations that were happening at these different events. And somebody recently said to me, you know, I kind of feel like it's almost like celebrating death, which is a really hard and a really difficult thing for people. And, you know, I, I don't disagree with that at all, but it's also, you know, our common humanity. We are, we, for the moment of our birth, you know, that's the direction we're headed in. And to not be prepared for that at all um, feels not right to me when there's so many things and so many possibilities uh, about preparing for that time in our life. You know, I watched my friends when they were having babies, even grandchildren now, and the amount of preparation that the family is doing to welcome that yes. child. And, you know, I think, you know, on the other end, you know, it's often sort of couched as a horrible, awful, you know, terrible tragedy that's, you know, befallen somebody. And I don't think death needs to be like that. I think that's a very kind of specifically about it being a very medicalized event in our culture. And, um, so not about, you're saying the, not about death itself, right? but about, but about what surround it, surrounds it in, in our culture. 
Well, Susan, you know I couldn't agree more. I mean, I would say that uh, Joanne, of course, who you knew very well too, uh, my first wife, she had a very yeah. non-medicalized death. Yes. And uh, it was and being in- able to support that and watch, you know, how that death that you that and that happened, I think, because you and Joanne spoke about this. This wasn't hidden in your family. Your children you know at two and at 15, they knew this was happening in our family and they were able to participate or not as they felt comfortable. And the community of people that Joanne had assembled um, this was something that everybody, you know, had an opportunity to participate in. And again, it's like turning towards the suffering kind of alleviates the suffering part. You know, you know that's interesting. And it and it reminds me of something that happened since you've mentioned my children. Uh, that kid who was 14, actually, when Joanne right. died, the older one, when her dad died, she was 11. And... Right. Uh, we made the decision not to have her stay. And um, that was so traumatic for her. Yes. um, That when she was 14 and Joanne was dying, I said, you're you're in charge of your own experience here. You be here Mm -hmm. as much as you want, and you can go if you don't want to be here. And she wanted to be there for everything and I mean everything because we ended up watching the cremation in person you know and she I believe was very very healed by being allowed into that but it was kind of a radical decision to make you know obviously 14 is different than 11 etc but and it and the other one one of my other kids was two and a half, and she also mm-hmm. got to be there for all of it. Not everyone would decide that, but um, I have absolutely zero regret about those decisions at all. Yeah, and I often talk to people when there's conversations around trying to protect children in the family when somebody's critically ill and somebody is dying, and you know, well, well, we don't want the kids to know. And I, you know, sometimes I'll say, and I try to say it very kindly because I know it can sound facetious, but you know, like if you want to know what's happening in your family, talk to your children. They know everything that's happening in this family. <laughs> and for them, you know, amen on that one. <laughs> I mean, in my experience, I remember so clearly that, you know, that horrible, um, you know, kind of thing when my grandmother died and my mother was so emotional and just, it was, of course, she was so emotional. She was an only child. Her mother's just died. She's finding it out because somebody's calling her. Um, You know, it was just really terrible and I knew it was terrible. But what we were told is everything's fine here. Everything's fine. In a way, we're, we're training children to distrust what they know. They know something's not right. And when they don't have the opportunity to understand, you know, definitely what a two and a half understands is different than what a 14-year-old understands, but children understand that something has changed and um, people are emotional and now people are crying and now somebody's gone. And for them to have no way to navigate that, I don't know that that's in the best interest of children sometimes. I think it's often um, 
you know, it's easier in some ways because it's so painful when somebody that we, that's so dear to us, that's, you know, our parents or, you know, a loved one dies, um, that we can barely navigate our own emotions and then to also navigate the emotions that the children are experiencing. But I also have seen in families when that's done collectively, that the end result is that the family's reintegrated and people aren't just, you know, they don't, you know, they aren't using drugs. They're not, you know, they're not dealing with their emotions in ways that are unhealthy. They're able to navigate their emotions and they're able to understand death in a very different way than uh, children that are not allowed that experience to whatever degree they can navigate it. You know, I would I not so recommend tossing you your kids into a room where they're afraid and they're voicing that. But if they're curious or they want to be there, um, then then to support that desire, I think that's how these kinds of, you know, things change culturally. It it changes when, you know, families approach this in a different way. And I remember a woman who um, became a, just a fabulous volunteer during her volunteer training. She said, you know, when my 39-year-old husband, who was larger than life and beloved by hundreds of people, when he became ill with a terminal brain, you know, cancer, and my daughter was 13, um, you know, our family and friends did not know how to navigate that. They kind of ran out the door like the house was on fire. But then mm-hmm. hospice came running in with the volunteers, and she said, that fascinated me. You know, I understood a nurse, a doctor, sure, a social worker, maybe, you know, the bath aides, yes, absolutely. But a volunteer, you know, those other people are getting paid um, to do a job. And this is what, you know, she's explaining to the rest of the volunteers. But she said, the volunteer shows up. I had no explanation for that. That somebody wanted to be in an experience that in my mind was horrible and terrible made me reconsider what poss- what possibilities might exist in this situation. And um, consequently, the experience that her family had and then that what she provided to dozens of other families while she was volunteering um, was very often transformative in, uh, and, and in demonstrating to people how to be physically with somebody that's dying, you know, how to be in terms of conversation or emotional support, um, how to just, as my friend Diane Gillen, a wonderful hospice nurse says, Hospice is the laying on of ears. You know, how to just listen to what's important to that person. Something that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was saying 50 years ago and that we still have not heard deeply enough. That's a good time for our second break so I don't have to stop listening um, precipitously. (laughs) We found a pause. But let's come back to that. I mean, there's so much we could... We could say just about um, why we, let's start here, why you and I share in common a deep drive towards this whole area. Um, Obviously, we share that. And let's talk even a little more about that. And listeners, while we're on the break, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, the Good Grief host page. And to find Susan Barber, send her an email at sbarber at missionhospice.org. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? 
Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Susan Barber, who's been in end of life care for the past. 30 plus years and uh, before the break Susan we were we were just alluding to how passionate we are about going towards this thing the story you told about what people assume before they have experiences like this that you know a normal person runs kicking and screaming from the room when we're yeah. <laughs> when we're talking right. about DEATH and yeah. uh, for those of us that run towards that room um you know obviously i met you when you were producing stephen and andrea levine um workshops and that is definitely running towards the room um well the only thing the only thing more than that is of course there'd be 600 people in those rooms which just yes you know five to six hundred people and i would travel when they were in other parts of the country and it wasn't unique to the bay area there'd be between four and six hundred people you know in seattle in uh in north carolina you know in new york city 
And so that kind of got me thinking about this. You know, I think pretty clearly there's this idea that we live in a death-denying society and people don't want to talk about this. And those rooms made me rethink that idea. I think people don't have any idea where to go if they do want to talk about this. And having, you know, in addition to the the good fortune, I mean, I the, I just I wake up almost every day and thank the universe for meeting Stephen and Andrea Levine, who have stayed in my life, you know, for 30 years. Um, and I think, you know, the Center for Attitudinal Healing, which was the place in Marin during those days where uh, Jerry Jampowski had set up a place where, you know, terminally ill children. I facilitated a group for teens with life-threatening illness. I was participating in a support group who's for friends and family of people that were dying. There was a life-threatened group. There was an HIV group. And all of this was about looking at how our, you know, there's a lot of circumstances we can't change. Attitudinal healing was about looking at our attitudes towards things and seeing where we might have some movement. And that was very helpful for me during the days when it seemed like every day I was just navigating somebody's very, you know, ill state and navigating, you know, the way towards death and uh, in very sometimes unskillful ways. So I do think that there were opportunities. There was also, I was so grateful that I was introduced to a group of Buddhist monks and nuns and Buddhist monks and nuns spend pretty much a good part of every day, you know, considering impermanence. Um, So looking at death from that perspective was also so very helpful. And those three things were like a sort of tripod of a foundation for me to be able to navigate that. And so in my own life now, whenever I have an opportunity to introduce people to each other, that I think could be, it could be a mutually beneficial situation because I have so much gratitude to the people that introduced me to those folks. You know, I, I, that's, if I just had a booth on the street that said, you know, come over here and I'll introduce you to people that might be helpful for you to know, I, that would be, that's actually what my job is now. No, in community I, I agree. I think I've said those exact words to you before. You know, you, you, you need to be yeah. somewhere connecting people because you're so good at it. <laughs> For sure, yeah, I feel but like then I'm you're, but then you're also one of the, the people time. to be connected, Susan. That's yeah. part of what I'm feeling having you on here today. Um, uh, you know, I think most people wouldn't you agree? Um, come start running towards the room because they love someone or something enough not to run away. Uh, that's my story. That's your story. You know, when someone you love is, is dying and nothing in you can run away. Uh, right. And you're running towards that one person at first. Wouldn't you agree? And then, and then it becomes a livable place that, you know, for me, I never knew that could be a livable place. And it turns out it is. Very much so. It's a very lively place. Right. And, and, you know, I remember I just, I was looking through photographs um, the other day and I have, there's a picture that I'll share with you. Um, I was going to send it to you in advance of this, but as you know, I'm actually in New Orleans on a vacation right now, but there's a beautiful picture and I'll, I'll never forget this day. Um, Joanne had loved so much in the morning, a nursing friend of hers would get off the night shift and bring her a latte, uh, you know, and that was her. She loved that. And she, the woman came in one morning and brought the latte and Joanne couldn't lift her head up far enough to actually drink it. And in that moment, I remember Stephen telling a funny story about um, 
something at a workshop and I thought, okay, we need to innovate here. And I looked around the room and there were these huge, huge syringes in there. I said, Joanne, don't despair, because it was very, like, that was sort of a, you know, when you're watching people that are declining and moving towards death, you know, there's sort of these milestone events, like, where you could do something, and now you can't, and I felt like that, in that moment, like, there was something about not being able to drink that by yourself, I was like, here you go, so we, we took the two lattes, we poured them into these huge syringes, and then we just pushed the syringe in our mouth and drank them that way. They were the big plastic tip syringes. <laughs> and somebody took a photo of that, and I found the two photos just this weekend, and it made me cry And because we are laughing. We are laughing, and she's, you know, she's moving towards her death. And Bob, my friend, he's like my soulmate, when he was dying one day in the hospital, he said to me, I think we're enjoying this too much. And I said, you know, I don't think that's, thing, that's something that most people that are, you know, you know quote unquote dying would say. And I said, we just started laughing. I said, you know, we can make this as miserable as you need it to be, but I think that time might be coming on its own. So like, just yeah. like for as much as we can enjoy the life we have in whatever capacity, you know, and I see this over and over in hospice families, um, when hospice comes to support a family, it's often so different from what they're expecting. Um, and they can really, you know, lighten their load by having so much more support than just one person caring for another. And, yes. you know, what you're saying about this connection of death and love, you know, there's kind of a pithy saying that, you know, love is stronger than death. But I think it's true. And that ability to turn us towards death because somebody we love is dying. You know, I think one of the great mysteries of my life has been with the people that I love that have died that have not left my life. I, you know, even if their death has been 25 or 30 years ago, I still feel intimately connected with them and often find myself having conversations with them. Um, All the time, indeed. And learning to relate to that, that's a very hard thing because our culture has no room for that. Well, but we have our own culture, don't we, Susan? And I'm sure many people listening are part of that as well. Yeah. There's a couple of things I, I really don't want to miss out on on talking about just briefly before we go. Um, and uh, it fits in kind of with what we're talking about because it's another thing no one could imagine that y- this training you did for uh, in uh, incarcerated people at San Quentin, uh, one of the people you send me was uh, Edgar Behrens, who wrote, who did a film yeah. about another program like that, which was phenomenal, phenomenal film and a ph- phenomenal man. But of course, San Quentin is near me, and um, the idea that that is happening there um, is is um, awe inspiring. I'm so aware that people. Um, you know, people can't get out. People can't get that family kind of support uh, right. to navigate their it's, deaths. It's um, very rare. I mean, and there's I just, a program called Compassionate Release, but there's so very few people um, because of the bureaucracy that is required to initiate and to release somebody on Compassionate Release. That's about an eight to 12 month process for most people, it seems. And yet they need to have a six-month or less diagnosis in order to qualify. So very few people have that option, which means that most people who are in prison, particularly, you know, they're in prison for life, they die um, in prison. And in California, there is a, a, a good hospice facility, the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, but each 
prison has its own opportunity, um, you know, to figure out what they're doing around that. And so at San Quentin, currently there's not a hospice program there, um, but there were, there are a group of men that are called the Brothers Keepers. They have been um, very highly trained individuals uh, that have all sorts of emotional intelligence training and are certified most of them as drug and alcohol counselors, as rape counselors, and they're peer counselors within the prison, and they've had a lot of different kinds of training, and one kind of training that they had been asking for, uh, one of the guys in the group said for 10 years, they, they'd hoped this would happen, uh, was to help them navigate when they're supporting their fellow prisoners who are dying in prison, how do they go about doing that? And so we had an opportunity um, two very wonderful women um, who had been working on this for many, many years. Um, they came with Edgar and an amazing man, Marvin Much, who I hope you interview as well, who spent 41 years in prison unjustly accused of a crime he did not commit. But he was a foster child and he was 18 years old when he was prosecuted and had no support. And so 41 years later, he comes out. And his advocacy around the people that are still in prison is... Um, a thing to behold, but Marvin and Edgar Barron and uh, Lady Bird Morgan and Sandy Fish came to our office and um, our, my um, chief clinical officer, Lisa Deal, and my manager, Mary Matisson, who you've also um, highlighted on the show, they met with them and at the end of that meeting, um, Lisa came out and said, we can support them with the training materials that we use for volunteers here at Mission Hospice. We understand this isn't a hospice volunteer training, but we can certainly contribute to the compassion end-of-life care that we believe at Mission Hospice every human being deserves. It's a human right, actually. So um, with the, within a few weeks or days, um, we were sharing material with, the, with Sandy and Lady Bird and they invited me to participate in the training due to the training that I had been doing for, at that point, 20 years. And we began this at the end of September, and we concluded it on Monday. And I have to say it was one of the most beautiful experiences for these men who were in San Quentin because they, in some cases, had done terrible things, that they've spent a large portion, far, more, far longer part of their life, uh, looking for re- ways to redeem those crimes. And one of the ways they do this is by being of service to anybody in the prison that's suffering. And this was an integral part of their, of being able to support that work they're doing because as this is true out in the society, there's so many people aging and dying. Um, the baby boomers, this is the, we call it the silver tsunami in some places. Um, you know, this is a time where people, um, our age, you know, I think there's sort of an openness to thinking about this now because both our parents and ourselves are having to navigate it. Absolutely. So, we're go- uh, we're going to have to believe it or not, these Susan. These men were willing to do with none but, of the, you know, very little of the support that a hospice team has going into a family. Or, for example, we have a beautiful I'm gonna, hospice I'm going to have to cut in because we've run out of time. Oh my <laughs> Believe goodness. it or not. <laughs> wow. But I'm going to have you back to talk about that project at the at the prison, because I just think that's so um, incredible and impactful. And I, I, I want a whole show just to devote to that, to what happened there when you did that program. So I hope you'll come back very soon and, and talk about that. Well, I hope so too, Cheryl. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And for anybody out there that's considering how to do this, call your local hospice, get on our email list. Um, people out there and, need And support. for sure, go to missionhospice.org and look up the programs that Susan does. They're tremendous. Mm-hmm. 
This has been Grief, Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.